0: It's getting harder to talk to a real person out there, isn't it? When you call or you want information or you want an appointment, a lot of times you wind up getting a menu instead. And even when you can get an appointment sometimes with a professional, is it just me or do you get the feeling that you're being rushed a little bit? And I understand that. With tough bottom lines and, and challenges of today's economy, I can understand how that you get an appointment with a professional and they need to get you in and out for the next person. What would it be like to have an appointment with Jesus? Would he rush you? Would he make you feel small? What would it be like if you had an opportunity to have a one-on-one appointment with Jesus? My well, mind flashes back to something that happened with me about 16 or 17 years ago. I had a chance to have an appointment with a man I felt like was America's greatest leader. You realize I live in a, in a world of, of churches, and so for me, the greatest leader in the world would be the greatest spiritual leader, at least to my vantage point, I would be much more nervous about meeting with this person than I would meeting the very president of the United States. And through a miraculous set of circumstances, I had an opportunity back in the day, many years ago, when our church was small, and I, I had a chance to have an, an appointment with the man I felt to be the greatest leader in America. Growing up in Texas, we often heard the Cowboys referred to as America's team. That's a joke. But I remember, <laughs> I remember calling this man America's pastor, because to me, he pastored the quintessential church in the country. He had a nationwide, worldwide ministry. He was a leader of a denomination. In fact, his impact on his denomination changed the world. And so the idea that he would ever have time for me was just ludicrous. He didn't know who I was. I was, I was from nowhere. I pastored a small church. I wasn't even part of his denomination but I can remember that we were, we were a church of about 500 at the time, and we were about to try to build this campus, and it was a radical, almost impossible thing to do. And I had hoped that I could get a, an opportunity to just get him on video for five minutes talking to our congregation because his church had done something on a grand scale a few years before that was kind of similar to us videographer who lived in the same state who's a friend of mine said to me if you can just get five minutes of his time I'll come over from my city to his city and I'll shoot the video and you can take it back home with you and so my hopes that I could just find some way to get five minutes of his time where he would be on camera with me and so the request was made but of course you can imagine I'm nobody from nowhere not even part of his denomination and so when the request got to the team around him the answer was, well, he doesn't do that kind of thing, but if your minister friend really is interested, he can write a letter. I mean, I, I was really clear. It wasn't going to lead anywhere. It was like if I really wanted to, I could write a letter, which this is more about me than you want to know, but I don't write letters. I dated Mary Alice for six years before we got married. I think I wrote her one letter, and it was a half page long. I'm the kind of person who likes to talk, and so writing letters is hard for me. You know, if, you've, if, you know, every once in a while someone will write me an email that, you know, calls for an answer. And, and I think, just, let's just talk. I'd, I'd rather talk uh, to you to answer that question, you know, if, especially if it's something about the Bible. And it's like, I, I'm not good at writing, but I like to talk. So in any event, writing a letter, and, and this particular leader, you know, wanted me to tell our story. Well, if you've been at New Spring for a long time, you know the story about the miraculous story, how we had the land. At that point, all we had was land. And so I was telling him the story about how God was leading in the acquisition of the land. And before I got through writing the letter, it was eight pages long. Now I remember telling him, and I says, no, it's not a snowball's chance. He's going to read this because I don't read eight-page letters. You know, I pastored a little church in Kansas, and I had a secretary. If a letter that long came in, she would highlight the salient portions, and I would just read those. So I said, there's no way in the world one of the most important men is going to read this letter, you know, this whole letter. But I had poured out the story of eight pages, a week later, to my utter amazement, I found out he, he, he had read the letter, he had poured over the letter, and he told a friend who knew me, he said, get him out here, that man and me are like this, I want him out here. And so, 16, 17 years ago, I had a chance to visit with, and thankfully, many times after that, I had an opportunity to spend time with the man that I felt was the greatest leader in America, maybe in the world. Oh, I can tell you this, I remember real well the night before I was going to meet him, I was terrified. I was in the hotel room, I tossed and turned, I didn't sleep all night. I mean, I may have dozed a little bit, I wake up three o'clock in the morning, I think, in a few moments, I'm gonna meet him. And I don't know what to say. I'm 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 gonna appear like such a, have you ever had this feeling if you ever met somebody really important? It's like, I'm gonna sound like such a buffoon, real quickly, she's gonna see through me, he's gonna see through me, and know that I'm surely not in his circle and I'm gonna make such a fool of myself. Well, and I mean, by six o'clock in the morning, I'm thinking, why did I ever agree to this? Anyway, I drove to the campus, the campus was huge. In fact, the locals uh, almost derisively called it Six Flags Over Jesus. (laughs) There were two exits off the interstate that went into the campus. One exit was just simply for the campus. So I drive to this huge campus, and it's this huge office complex where, like, the receptionist has a receptionist has a receptionist. And so I walk in there, and I still remember, it's been so many years ago, but I remember I said... I'm Mark Hoover here to see Dr. Rogers. And the moment I said Mark Hoover, my name never sounded so small as it sounded like that. It's like, I'm Mark Hoover here to see Dr. Rogers. And instantly men in suits came out, not to arrest me, but a couple of men in suits came out and said, oh, you're Mark Hoover. Dr. Rogers has left strict instructions that the very moment you arrive on campus we're to bring you to him. And so they began to take me down through the corridors of this large campus And I still remember walking up to a conference center. And I looked through the door and there was a man I'd seen on television many times, watched on videotape many times. But I look and there he is right in front of me. I've never seen him live before, but there he is. And he's talking to this crowd of about 150, 200 leaders, which I found out later was all his staff, all of his leaders. And to my surprise and later my dismay one of the men in suits who was with me opened the door walked in stopped him in the middle of his presentation in this conference center whispered something in his ear which i later found out was mark hoover is here and i watched as he stopped his talking this excuse me just a moment i need to go outside i've got a very important guest here i need to meet him and i'll come right back and finish this up and i watched as he walked out the door and he came out and he shook my hand and he threw his arms around me and said oh mark i've been waiting for you to get here And he went back in, he finished his talk. In fact, he apologized to me. He said, I'm sorry, I have this talk once a year with my staff, and I need to get through with that. But as soon as I get through with that, I'll come out and we'll spend the day together. Oh, now I'm really scared. So we get into his automobile out in the parking lot, and he said we're going to go to a seminary where he was going to give a talk for a colloquium, and then we were going to go have lunch together. And So he sits down, starts the ignition, and I'm thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? How am I going to start this conversation? But instantly he turned to me and he said, so Mark, tell me about yourself. Well, I thought there's not a whole lot to tell. And he said, are you married? I said, yeah, I, have a, I, I married my high school sweetheart, Mary Alice. Really? Joyce and I were high school sweethearts. And he said, do you have kids? I said, I have three sons. I have a son, Jonathan, a son, Jared, and my youngest son is Stephen Paul. Stephen Paul! I have a grandson who's Stephen Paul. And you know, from that moment on, it was the day of my life. There's not a day that goes by that I don't remember things that he taught me. In fact, I taught a large group of pastors this week and quoted things that he taught me years ago, even though he's been in heaven since 2005. He made me feel that day and every day that we spent through the years thereafter, he made me feel like I was the most important person in the world. That afternoon, Mary Alice, who was also a huge fan, called me and said, what's he like? I said two things. First of all, he's like an overgrown little boy, which every great leader I've ever met who is a man is kind of like that. I said, he's like an overgrown little boy. And I said, the second thing is, I think I know now what it would be like to have an appointment with Jesus, because I think if you could have an appointment with Jesus, he would make you feel a lot like Adrian Rogers made me feel that day, because he has a lot of Christ in him. Jesus would make you feel like you are the most important person in the world. Our series is called The Appointment, and for the next seven weeks, we're going to look at one-on-one appointments that Jesus had. I mean, sure, there were crowds. I mean, there were crowds that came out to hear Jesus preach. We know at one time there was a crowd of probably 20,000 people, but who knows, that was probably a regular occurrence. Jesus had lots of crowds who came out to watch him preach. You know, when I was a young person, I don't know if they still do this or not, but when I was a young person growing up, you know, when bands would perform, a lot of times they would, you know, have, you know, there would be the logo or there would be the picture of the band on the back. There would be like a tourist shirt. There would be a list of, of places that this band played, you know, New York, Philadelphia, Albuquerque, Houston. I mean, you know, and and this was like the tour shirt for the band for this year. I mean, I I sort of think sometimes we think about Jesus and he has a tour shirt. There's Jesus there in the front and all of his 12 disciples are back there in the back. And on the back, there's the places where he played and the crowds that came, he played Jerusalem and Nazareth and Bethlehem. (laughs) But the Bible doesn't teach that story. I'm sure there were crowds, but if you look at the four Gospels, the four Gospels are filled with stories of one-on-one appointments with Jesus. Jesus meeting people. And there are three things that I'm going to say probably every week, five times a week for the seven weeks. There are three characteristics of Jesus' meetings. Number one, life put them in a particular place. Number two, Jesus met with them. Number three, their lives were never the same, for good or for bad after that. And so, in these seven appointments that Jesus had with all kinds of people that we're going to look at, my guess is that somewhere along the line, you're going to find yourself because it's really important for all of us to have an appointment with Jesus. Actually, we need to have an appointment with him every day. There was a, a man who was a newspringer for many years. And uh, he had his funeral was last week, and, and a family member spoke at his funeral. And I thought he said one of the most eloquent things I've ever heard spoken in a funeral. He spoke of, of this wonderful man, and he said he met Jesus, and he was talking about him in salvation. But he said he met with him every day. And that's what I hope is true for you. I hope that you have an appointment with Jesus that changes your life, but you have an appointment with him every day. Today, I want to start the title of my talk is The Last Person in the World. The reason why I start here because, you know, when I had that appointment with my friend Adrian Rogers, I didn't think there was any chance in the world I could have an appointment with him. I would have thought, I guess, as a you know, as a small, small state, small city pastor that wasn't even in his denomination, I would have thought, I'm the last person in the world he would want to spend the day with. It could be here today that you would think about yourself in a more honest moment. I think I'm the last person in the world that God would want to have anything to do with. And so because we all probably think that at times, I want to start by Jesus' appointment with the last person in the world. She was a woman who lived in Samaria. That made her a Samaritan. In those days, there was a lot of prejudice between Jewish people and Samaritans. Jesus lived in a Jewish culture. That was his background. That was pretty much his ministry. and so. The Samaritans were people that the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with. And there was history that went along with this. History that went back hundreds of years. See, when when the Jews went into captivity, they actually went into captivity several times to several people groups. One of the most ruthless people groups that the Jews were ever captive by, held captive by, were, were the Assyrians. And if you study the history of the Assyrians, they were a brutal people. They were brutal in ways I wouldn't even begin to try to describe to you. And when the Assyrians captured Israel, they brought some of their own people in to settle in Israel. And some of the Jewish people that lived in one section were so desperate and so beaten down and so discouraged that they gave up on their faith, they gave up on their Jewishness, and they did the one thing that Jewish people never could accept, and that was they intermarried. Because after all, the Jewish people were in a covenant relationship with God, and so marrying within their nation was very important to them. And for these people to give up on their faith and to give up on their Jewishness and intermarry with the one of the worst people groups in the world, those people who were faithful to their nationality and faithful to their faith, they just couldn't abide that. And over the years, there was a deep and there was a almost hatred that came between the two groups. And because the Samaritans were not welcome into the Jewish worship system, the Samaritans were not only considered a race of half-breeds who were outcasts from the Jewish culture, now they developed their own religion. And Jews had another reason to have a problem with them. They had intermarried, and beyond that, they had a false religion. So you might think that, that Jesus, the last person that Jesus would talk to is a Samaritan, because after all, they were rejected. But imagine, if you will, please, a person who is rejected by the rejected. In other words, a person that a rejected people group would have nothing to do with. And that's exactly what we're going to find, Jesus having an appointment with. Because the woman of Samaria, not only was she part of a group that was the wrong side of town, she was the town, you can fill in the word, she was the town person that the rejected people would have nothing to do with. By the way, if you want to find out just how much hostility there was between Jews and Samaritans, one time, you know, Jesus could be very popular one week and very unpopular the next week. And when Jesus was very unpopular, there were those who accused him of having a demon. And here's what they said. They said, you have a demon and you're a Samaritan. That's in John 8, verse 48. So when they, they said, oh, you have, a, you have a demon and oh, by the way, you're also a Samaritan. When they were thinking about the worst things they could call him. And yet amazingly, Jesus said to his disciples in John 4:4 that he had to go through Samaria. He had to go there. Now, I want you to realize the impact of what Jesus is saying because Jewish people avoided all things Samaritan, they wouldn't walk on the same dirt. They wouldn't touch anything a Samaritan had touched. Lord, God forbid that they would drink from the same vessel a Samaritan would drink with. But the hostility was so great. Let me give you the geography of this so it'll kind of help you understand. And this is no commentary on Oklahoma, I'll tell you, before I get there. <laughs> Just so that you'll see this in your mind. If Texas were Judea, where Jerusalem is, the Holy Land, so to speak. If Texas were where Judea was and Kansas is Galilee, Oklahoma would be Samaria. And so the Jews would not go up I-35 because they didn't want to go through Samaria. They would go over to West Texas, New Mexico, over to Colorado, and then come over this way. So they bypassed Samaria every chance they got. So for Jesus to say to his disciples, I have to go through Samaria, he wasn't talking about geography. He was talking about, I have an appointment with somebody, and I've got to see this person. And of all things, this person is in Samaria. Jesus has an appointment with the last person in the world. Now, she doesn't know it. I mean, she may know she's the last person in the world God would want to have anything to do with, but she doesn't know that she has an appointment with Jesus. There's a woman who lives in Samaria, and life's been tough. If you want to talk about life put her there, life put her in an awful place. Uh, She's going to meet Jesus at high noon. I'll explain that in just a moment. I always wonder, and we get to heaven. I can't wait to meet her because I've got to tell you, this is my favorite Bible story. I cannot wait to meet this woman because I want to ask her, what were the morning hours like? I mean, I know what her afternoon was like because after she met Jesus, her life would never be the same again. I think she became a phenomenal person. I think she became, if you want to know what I think, I think she became a missionary. There are things that I read in the book of Acts that make me think this woman changed the world. I know what her afternoon was like. I would like to know what her morning was like because she has no idea that this day is going to be the most radical day of her life. She gets up in the morning and, you know, she's, her life is basically over. I mean, when Jesus will tell her that he could give her a life, I think it's because her life is finished. She gets up in the morning and she does necessary but meaningless tasks. And her life has been over for a long time. She's marking time waiting to die. Probably in her early 30s, she looked like she's 50 and you, you ever notice that when somebody, when somebody walks, you can sort of tell about what their emotions are like. If somebody is walking with a lot of energy and great posture and they're walking fast, you kind of feel like they're up. On the other hand, if you see somebody just kind of stumbling along with, you know, stooped shoulders and they're looking down, you kind of get the feeling they might not be feeling good. And I, when I, when I think about this woman moving in the morning, I kind of look at her like, a, almost like a zombie. I mean, she's a dead woman walking because her life is over. You know, we're so quick to judge. I don't mean you and me, but I mean, our culture is so quick to judge, isn't it? When we see somebody who's really screwed their lives up, it's so easy to think, wow, they put themselves there. But you know, I, I don't think most people who really get their lives in a tangled mess, I don't think they do it on purpose. My best friend, Billy Poor is always telling me, and he's said something to me many times as we've talked about decisions. He said, you know, if you put one foot in front of the other going the right direction, it's amazing how far you'll go. But the opposite is true too, isn't it? How many of us have discovered you put one foot in front of the other going the wrong direction, and it's amazing how far you can go in the wrong way? I mean, how many of us have done that? And we said, I didn't plan to end here. I didn't plan for this to happen. And I'm sure at one time this woman had little girl dreams. I mean, she was like all little girls. The idea is she's going to grow up, she's going to meet a great guy, you know, she's going to settle down, have a nice home, have some kids, raise the kids, watch the kids grow up, have some grandkids. I mean, that's the kind of life she's going to have. But five marriages and five bitter divorces later, those dreams are all gone. Through the years, I've always wondered what her five weddings were like. You know, we read this in the Bible, you know, she'd been married five times. But, you know, if if you have five marriages, they're not all the same. All the weddings are not the same. And I sort of kind of get an idea of how these weddings happen. Because I'm guessing that as she got married each time and then divorced and then had subsequent marriages, people changed their opinions of her. I mean, the first wedding I want to feel was a beautiful wedding. It was a, you know, grand wedding. Her dad gave her away. She had a magnificent white dress. And by the way, those of you dads and moms who paid for daughters' weddings, you need to know that back in Jesus' day, people didn't have a few hours of reception. They had seven days of reception. That could get pricey, right? So I'm guessing, you know, she had this magnificent wedding. All her friends came. All her family came. I mean, you know, she tossed the garter and, you know, I mean, pictures and all the whole thing. But it didn't work. I don't know how it broke up. Maybe she did something wrong. Maybe he did. Maybe it was both of them. Maybe they just grew apart. Who knows? Didn't work. And I don't know how people thought about that, but I'm guessing that in Samaria they said, well, those things happen. Happens in the best of families. And then there's the second wedding. Certainly it's not going to be as grandiose as the first, but you know she does go out and buy a new dress for the wedding, and her friends throw her a party, and they give her gift cards, and, and um, you know, it's a good time, and lots of hopes for it didn't work last time, but it's going to work this time. But it didn't work. I don't know why. I do know one thing. I do know sometimes I've watched good people go from one marriage to another marriage, and they think in the first marriage, well, it just got the wrong person. But the problem is, they fail to deal with the issues that were in the first marriage and they go into a new marriage and they take the old problems into a new relationship. And maybe that happened. I don't know. But the marriage broke apart. But now people are starting to look at her a little different because this is twice now. And you know, it could happen, but I think she's lost the benefit of the doubt. And then there's the third wedding. Well, this time there's no dress, new dress. She just borrows a dress from a friend. It's the wrong size, but it's not all that important because after all, it's just going to be a weekend, a quick trip to Vegas, a cheesy wedding chapel. They're going to get married, you know, and come back to town and, and try again. But this one doesn't work out either. I don't know. Is it her fault? Does she cheat? Does he cheat? Do they just decide they're not robbed for each other? Does he go back to his other wife? I don't know. I just know the marriage falls apart. Well, now she's damaged merchandise. And then there's the fourth wedding. I don't know exactly what happened, but I'm guessing it happened something like this. You know, why even bother changing? We're just stopping by the justice of the peace on the way home and, you know, getting married. And, but, of course, it, it doesn't work out either. And the fourth marriage failed. And we don't do this anymore. Remember when we used to do this, you know, hear the loser sign? People in Samaria probably didn't do that, but I mean, mentally they did. They saw her kind of, they think, four weddings, four divorces, you know, loser. And then there's a fifth wedding. I mean, she met the guy at a bar last night. She doesn't even remember where she got married, but after all, who cares? It was a joke anyway. It was just kind of, you know, hey, let's go get married. And of course it failed. And now she's just any man, who will give her a bed or room for the night. i think she wondered some days how did i wind up here maybe that morning when she went to meet jesus she she thought to herself i wonder how i got here three things are clear at least in the place where she lived nobody loved her nobody cared what happened to her and nobody believed in her anymore and i see her that morning getting up going through her morning tasks things are no different she's just running through this this is going to be a day like any other day i just need to find some way to get through these 16 hours and then i'll go to bed tonight and go back to sleep and i'll get up a morning and i'll get up tomorrow morning and i'll die again for 16 hours and that's all i have to look forward to there's a little chunk of history that John chapter 4 gives us that really is very meaningful It says that she had to get water. I mean, there was no utility like we have today. So a homemaker would have to leave the community and go out to the well and get enough water and get a big jug of water and bring it back for the day's usage of water. Well, women in those days who were homemakers would typically go early in the morning or late in the evening because it was a very hot, arid climate. And the last thing you want to do is go in the middle of the day when the sun is beating down. So it was a a ritual every morning. In fact, it was almost a social gathering. It was a social function for the people who were going out to get water to talk on the way out swapping stories about life and men and women do this let's be honest we gossip we talk about people this woman has decided that she's not going to go when everybody else goes because she knows who they're gossiping about have you ever had people talk about you i don't mean an inferiority complex but i mean have you ever had people talk about you and you know they're talking about you it's kind of hard isn't it Do you ever have people give you the stare or the look a disdainful look She's just seen that happen too many times. So she's determined what she's going to do is she is going to go to the well when absolutely nobody else will be out there and she will get the one thing she craves more than anything else, anonymity, privacy. I can be by myself. I'm dying for 16 hours a day. At least let me die by myself. This is no ordinary day, though. The creator of the universe has made a trip for her. The creator of the universe has an appointment with her that she doesn't know about. Now, get this in your mind, and I hope God keeps this on videotape, because Jesus, at this point, has gotten to the well that the Samaritan woman is headed for. He sends his disciples into town to get food, but mostly, I think, because they would be in the way. So he gets them out of the way, and he's just draped, sitting down, draped over the side of the well. And the woman is watching him as she gets close, thinking, uh-oh, here is somebody here, a stranger, a Jewish Can you see her as she begins to move into his space? Now lock that, freeze that. Because for just a brief moment, I want you to get into their minds. I mean, obviously, we can't know exactly what they were thinking. But I think we can look into the Samaritan woman's mind as she gets to the well. She's thinking, my life is over. My life is finished. I'm a loser. Nobody does anything but use me. Everybody in my life has used me and thrown me away. I don't have anything to live for. I don't know who this stranger is. But I'm going to ignore him. I'm just going to pretend he's not there. I'm going to get my water without speaking. He's not going to speak to me. I'm not going to speak to him. I don't know what he's doing here. Never seen anybody here before at noontime, but I'm going to get my water and I'm going to leave. Now, I know it's a very difficult thing to do, but just for a few moments, would you like to try to get into Jesus' mind? Because I think if you got into his mind, he would have thought, I mean, he he knew that she didn't know who he was. And he knows that she doesn't begin to understand who he is and what he could do in her life. He knows that she's going to put up roadblocks and barriers, but he's also the son of God and he knows how this day will end. I think it would be interesting because if you you see them move toward each other, there's a Samaritan woman trying to avoid his gaze and you almost see Jesus setting on the well smiling because he knows what's about to happen here. Okay, unfreeze. The silence is broken. I so hope God kept all this on video because I want to see it. The sound You sort of think, okay, here's the Samaritan woman. She's walking toward Jesus. Jesus is there, creator of the universe. All of a sudden, there's going to be orchestra music playing in the heavens. The angels are going to sing in chorus, the hallelujah chorus. No. It's broken by a simple statement from Jesus. I just kind of hear him say kind of softly, could I have a drink, please? Now, for the next few moments, you and I are going to do something if, with your permission. I want to talk to you about the barriers that she puts up in Jesus' answers. Because you see, the thing about what what Jesus wants to do is he wants to give her eternal life. We can call that salvation. We can call it being born again. We can call it the new birth, regeneration. You can call it whatever you want to call it, but it's the most important thing that can happen to any person. It is the big check mark in life, whether we receive Jesus or we don't receive Jesus. He wants to give her the gift of everlasting life, but he knows that she, like all the rest of us, have a way of putting up barriers against the greatest gift in the world. And so we're going to watch for a few moments because she's going to raise barriers, and he's going to give answers. Now, while we go through this for a few moments, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice her barriers, and I want you to see that in Jesus' answers, he doesn't always answer her question. Because a lot of times we raise questions that we don't need to have answered. He's going to answer for her what's most important in her life. Okay? Let's notice the first barrier that she throws up because Jesus has said simply, May I have a drink, please? Look at her, look at her barrier. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now, the first barrier that she throws up is something kind of of a racial barrier. But I think, just me talking here, I think she was basically trying to say to Jesus, didn't your mama ever teach you anything? I mean, she may have been a few years older than Jesus. Jesus is probably 31, 32 at this point. And so I think she's, maybe she might have been a little bit older. It's like, I hate to give you a lecture, but didn't your mom ever talk to you about protocols? Um, You're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan. Jewish men don't even talk to Jewish women, not strange Jewish women. I'm a woman, and not only that, I'm a Samaritan woman. And, sir, clearly you should understand that you being a Jewish man asking me a Samaritan woman for a drink of water, that could be taken the wrong way. I mean, honestly, and and this is what I find really interesting about this. She is almost trying to protect Jesus from her. It's like, sir, you you haven't been taught well enough to protect yourself from me. I'm going to help you protect. How many of us have tried to explain to God why he should never receive us? God, surely you wouldn't want anything to do with me. Notice Jesus' answer. Jesus replied, if you knew the gift of God, the gift that God has for you and who I was... You, and who you're speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Now, she's asked Jesus a question about race. Do you see anything about race in Jesus' answer? Do you see anything about men or women or social proprieties or what's, what social norms are? Jesus just answered her question, ma'am, if you knew who I was, and if you knew the gift I've got right here for you, you would have asked me, and I would have given you living water. Well, now she's got another barrier, and sometimes we have this barrier with God. Because she doesn't understand how is he going to give her living water? She said to him, you don't have a rope or a bucket. The well is deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than Jacob? And in effect, Jesus has offered her a life, living water. But she's saying, I don't understand. Could I be very, very honest with you? I don't even remember the first time I heard God's plan of salvation. I'm sure I was a very little child. The plan of God's salvation is this. That God loves you so much, but you and I are sinners. God sent his son into the world who was both human and God at the same time. On a Roman cross, he took our sins upon him and paid for our sins. He moves his righteousness to our account. The moment we invite him into our life and believe and put confidence in Christ. Now, I want to tell you something. Just being honest with you, that makes no sense from the human level. If God said to me, I want you to do 1,000 hours of community service, that makes sense to me. If God said to me, I want you to join a church and follow its rituals, I could get that. But see, the thing that God has told me to do is to believe in him, to trust him, to invite him into my life, and to receive the greatest gift of all as, as a free gift. There's a part of me that can't understand that. And the woman said, I can't wrap my arms around this. Notice that Jesus answered in this way. He said, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink, I have that in red, those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. He basically said to her, you don't have to understand. All you have to do is to accept. As long as I live and as many thousands of times as I preach the gospel, I don't understand how God does a miracle in the life, but I know he does. I know if you'll give him a chance, if you'll invite him in, he'll do what you can't understand. And then she raises another barrier that people raise sometimes. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty again. Now, I want to read it to you the way I think she said it in the context. Okay, give me the water. In other words, the barrier that she is raising here is the barrier of let's get this thing over with so that I can go back home. I've seen people do this sometimes. Maybe there's a family who, who several members are believers, and maybe there's one person who's not a believer. Maybe it's a, a husband or a wife or a kid, and, there's, and the family desperately wants this person to come to faith. And so I've heard men sometimes say, well, my wife wants me to be a Christian, so just tell me what i got to do. Am I supposed to pray a prayer or get baptized? I guess, yeah, I'm ready to do it. Just get her off my back. <clears throat> if I were doing a wedding up here, conducting a wedding, and I got a bride and her attendants over here, and I got a groom and a groomsman over here. And all the time I'm doing the ceremony, the grooms, grooms over here yucking it up with the groomsman. And somehow he gets in, the, in, his, in his ears the fact that I've just asked, Will you have this woman to be your wife? And while he's over here talking to his groomsman, he says, Ugh. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, guess so. Well, listen, I'm not a smart man, but I can tell you something after having done a thousand weddings. That wedding's over. There's a, I know, I've known enough brides to know there's a bride that just canceled a wedding. Because basically she's going to say, <clears throat> you can't make one of the most important decisions in your life half-hearted. Here is a bride standing here who loves this guy. She is ready to give her life to him. But if he's doing it in a half-baked way, she's going to say, I'm not going to let you make the most important decision of our life in a half-hearted way. And so this woman is saying, okay, give me, give me this water. And Jesus is saying, no, nah. no. I mean, even though she's told him yes, she's not quite ready yet. Could we have a moment of real heart-to-heart candor for a moment? You and I live in a culture where if people attend a church service and a minister talks about sin and calls sin what it is, there's a feeling that that man is a mean man or a mean minister. I want to tell you something. That's one of the kindest things anybody can ever do for us Because what you need what I need more than anything else is we need a savior And if we don't see ourselves as a sinner, we can't see our need as a savior of a savior And the only way we'll know that we need a savior is to know that we're a sinner And so jesus is now going to talk honestly about her lifestyle now you and I know already he loves her He's made this whole trip for her, but at the same time she needs to understand why she needs a savior and so, right after she says, "Oh yeah, yeah, I guess so," I'll 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 take the living water. Jesus says, "Go call your husband." And to all her, all she knows, this guy's a total stranger. And there's no sense in airing out her dirty laundry in front of a stranger. And so she simply says, in a generic sense, "I don't have any husband." Well, technically that's true, but it can mean all kinds of things. I mean, did it, does it mean that? She never has been married. Does it mean that she's a widow? Does it mean that her husband went to see him and was never heard from again? I mean, it could mean all kinds of things. She just simply says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're sharing your bed with right now doesn't belong to you. Now, I can't prove this, but I've thought this through the years. I think she thought that last guy was a secret. And so Jesus said, you've been married five times, and you're sleeping with a man who won't give you his name right now. Well, now she comes up with a whole new barrier because at this point she's thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this guy's got something to do with God. So now she begins to talk about religion. Look at this. She said, sir, I see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. I mean, basically she now knows, this man knows her lifestyle, but it's like, oh, you want to talk religion, do you? Well, you Jews worship over here and we Samaritans worship over here. It's like, Have you ever talked to somebody and it's like, well, I'm Baptist, or I'm Catholic, or I'm Presbyterian, or I'm Buddhist, as if that would end the conversation. Let's just draw, call it a draw right now. The religious barrier. Guys, look at Jesus' answer. He said, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. But the time is coming, indeed it's here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. It doesn't say the Father is looking for Baptists. It doesn't say the Father is looking for Catholics, or the Father is looking for Charismatics, or the Father is looking for Hindus. The Father is looking for people who will worship Jesus Christ. What Jesus is telling this woman is what we say every week at New Spring. It isn't about religion. It's about having a relationship with God. Now, I don't know exactly what happened now, but from this moment on, the woman stops putting up barriers. Now, this is the other moment I hope God kept on video because you see her now with all of her barriers down. She says to Jesus, Well, I know Messiah is coming someday, and when he comes, he's going to answer all these questions for us. Now, what I find majestic about this and why I want to see it on video is Jesus chooses this moment talking to the last person in the world to make perhaps his most definitive statement about who he is. Jesus looks into the eyes of a woman whose life is over. The son of God, the creator of the universe, looks into her eyes and says, I'm he. It's me. You're talking to the Messiah right now. I should be finished right now, but i got to give you the most important part of the sermon. She does an inexplicable thing. She puts a water pot down and races back into the city. And she says to the people, come see somebody who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now, when I was working on this message at this point, I asked myself a question that all the times I've ever preached this message, I've never asked myself specifically or this firmly. I said, what was it that clicked in this woman's mind? I mean, because she she has this wonderful dialogue with Jesus, with barriers and Jesus answers, but I keep thinking, what was it that clicked? And because I couldn't figure it out, I just shut my computer off, and I went off and did something else for a while and prayed and thought about it, and all of a sudden, it hit me for the first time, and here's how I figured it out. I figured it out from the response of the people in her town. Think about what she said. Come see somebody who told me everything I did. Could this be the Christ? Let me ask you a question. If you leave here today and you go to Starbucks, and you run into a man or a woman there, and this person's a total stranger, and the next thing you find out is they know every bad thing you've ever done, could I ask you a question? Would you go running into Wichita and say, hey, everybody come to Starbucks, there's somebody over there who knows every bad thing I've ever done. Are you kidding me? I don't want anybody to find that person. I want to keep that person a secret. Do you see? I mean, that's what, that's what told me what clicked in her mind because she went back. And, and here's what her people understood. Hey, there's somebody out there who knows everything bad she did and she's still excited about him. That's what backed me into the answer of what clicked for her. You ready for this? What clicked for her was after a life of making stupid choices and being rejected for them. Here was a man who knew everything she'd ever done wrong And still loved her. Here was a man who knew every mistake she'd ever made. And still had a gift for her. Here was somebody who said everything she'd ever done. He knew. And yet he still said to her, I could give you a life. That is what draws us to Jesus. Because people are always knowing what we've done wrong and we go through rejection because of those things. But Jesus stands before us as the son of God and he loves us with an unconditional love. And he has an unconditional offer. And he says to us, I know every bad thing you've ever done, ever done, but I still love you and I still want to give you a life. And if you will trust me, you can walk away from here forgiven and restored and God's son or God's daughter and live with him forever. That is what Jesus got across to this woman, the last person on earth. I preach this message today because, to be honest with you, I feel that I'm the last person in the world that God would want to help. I feel that way because I know me. I know what you don't know about me. I know what I would have done if I could have gotten by with it. I know the thoughts that I thought about. And I'm talking to somebody here today, and you thought you were the last person in the world, and you didn't think anybody else felt that way. You just heard your pastor say he felt that way. I think pretty much any honest person is going to feel that way sometimes. But do you understand God knows everything about you and he still loves you? God knows everything about you and he still has a gift for you? And even if, I don't think anybody is like the Samaritan woman here today, but even if you're here today and nobody loves you and nobody cares what happens to you and nobody believes in you anymore, I can tell you Jesus loves you and Jesus cares what happens to you and he still believes in you. And I'm going to ask you to do the one thing that I don't think we can understand. It's a miracle that he's offered to us. Maybe it just clicked for you. Maybe you've sat through hundreds of services, but maybe it just clicked today. Jesus loves me. Anyway, Jesus still has a gift for me, no matter what I've done. And I'm going to ask you to pray. These aren't magic words. You know, people, we're going to see this in this series. People prayed all kinds of prayers. Thief on the cross said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. The publican said, Remember me, a, Lord, remember me, uh, for, for, a sinner. What God is looking for from you is just a simple request of salvation. And I'm going to pray a prayer with you. These aren't magic words, but if you want to join me, you can pray with me. And you can have your appointment with Jesus right now. Because here's the thing the Bible says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Same Jesus who met her by the will is leaning over heaven right now to listen to you. And if you want to pray with me, you can dear Jesus I know I'm a sinner sometimes I can even feel like the last person in the world you would love but I believe you love me unconditionally I believe you died to pay for my sins I ask you to forgive me and make me God's child in Jesus name amen I know we're in overtime today, but if you just pray to receive Christ, I have a gift I want to give you. Please don't leave before getting this. You can take the talk to us card. Just check the box that says, I pray to receive Christ. Go back to guest services. There's one in the middle of the lobby, a little one back by the coffee shop, and just say, I prayed with Mark. And they'll give you this. It's got a DVD on one side and a book that answers a lot of questions on the other and a coupon for a new Bible. Please come receive this today. Thank you for being here next week. We'll look at week two of the series. God bless. See you soon.